Well, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're trying to communicate something to someone, but as you're talking, you realize that they are not hearing you in the way that you're intending to be heard. They're not getting what you're trying to say. They're not taking away the same thing that you're trying to communicate. You ever had that happen? Anybody? I would think if you've ever spoken to anybody, you've probably experienced this. Well, on October 8th, 1998, I was trying to communicate a very important message to somebody who was very important to me, but I almost messed the whole thing up. I mean, I almost ruined it. It was the night that I proposed to my wife. See, I wanted this proposal to be perfect. It had to be, right? It had to be the perfect place, the perfect words, the perfect moonlight. Everything had to be perfect. And so I drove uh, my wife now, my fiance at the time, no, my girlfriend at the time. I drove us to a, a park by a lake, and it was, it was after dark, so there was a moonlight. It was going to be beautiful. And I had already, you know, scouted out the perfect spot at the park where I wanted to propose. But when I got there, when I got there, there were some other people hanging out in the area where I had intended to propose. So I kind of started to panic a little. This is a big night for me, right? And so I'm already nervous about proposing, and now somebody is messing it up. And so I started to stall. And we're kind of walking around in the park. And I'm kind of like scouting the area, like where's the second best place to propose here? Because um, I'm not calling off the proposal, right? And so I'm looking around trying to find the perfect place, and, and I'm panicking. And so uh, I just start rambling, and I start talking. And I'm trying to buy myself a little bit of time. And so I start rambling on about how, you know, the, yeah, our relationship, you know, I never really expected to find you, and I didn't really expect things to progress so quickly as they have, and I'm saying these things to her, and I'm still just looking around. I'm not even looking at her. I'm just talking, <laughs> and I'm looking around trying to find this perfect spot to propose, and I notice that she's not saying a word. She is absolutely silent. She's, she's not talking, and I look over at her. And, and there's just enough light from the moon for me to see that she's got tears coming down her face. And I'm like, what, what, what's the matter? Why, why are you crying? What, what's wrong? And she said, you're breaking up with me. <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, no, 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 no. This is not a breakup speech. No, quite the opposite, actually. And so at that point, all of a sudden, the, the, the perfect spot didn't matter anymore. So like right where we were standing, I didn't drop down on one knee. I dropped down on both knees. I reached into my pocket. I pulled out the ring and I said, Jen, will you marry me? And uh, thankfully, she said yes. Um, I, almost, I almost blew it, you know? I almost, I almost broke up with my wife while trying to propose. Um, so sometimes, uh, sometimes the message that we're trying to communicate is not being received in the way that we had intended. Well, last Sunday, um, and this is you know, sort of my, my routine 
On Sunday evenings, um, I sit down in my recliner and I um, just think about the morning message and how that went, and, and then I open to the next section that I'm going to be preaching on next week. And so last Sunday night, I'm sitting down and I'm opening to the next passage I'm going to read next week, and I'm just thinking about you know, how the morning message went. I was thinking about you know, how the series is going so far, and um, you know, I had this concern this, this thought was like plaguing me as I was sitting there thinking about the message. And I was thinking, how sad would it be? How sad would it be if, if true followers of Jesus were walking away from these messages doubting their salvation? And I talked a lot about that last week. That it would be just tragedy, really, because the whole reason that John is writing this you know, letter is to encourage true believers, that they are saved. He wants them to have that assurance. But the challenge with this letter is that John is simultaneously trying to assure true believers, right? But he's also trying to make it clear to those who are the false teachers and those who are following following the false teachers that they should not have assurance of salvation, right? So it's, it's a challenge because on the one hand, you don't want to falsely assure those who don't truly know the Lord. And on the other hand, you don't want to instill doubt in those who truly do. Do you see the, you see the challenge? And so as I was sitting in my recliner last Sunday evening wrestling with these thoughts, I opened my Bible and I began to read through this next section that we're going to be looking at today. And as I was reading it, I realized that it's possible that John may have been feeling the exact same way as he was writing the letter. Because up until this point, from really starting in chapter 1, verse 5, which Al just read from, starting there, up through chapter 2, verse 11, which is where we left off last week, John has not been pulling any punches, right, as he's going through this. He's addressing these false teachers that that had infiltrated the church. And he's made it clear that what we believe and how we live and how we relate to God and with each other, it really matters. It does matter. And so it's possible that some of the readers, as they were reading through this letter for the first time up to this point, they could have come away with the wrong conclusions. You know, after reading the first part of this letter, they might have questioned whether or not they were true believers. They might have thought, well, man, maybe John doesn't think that we really are, you know? Maybe John thinks that we're still living in the darkness. Are we? (laughs) You know? Maybe John thinks that we don't really know the Lord, that we don't really have a deep and meaningful relationship with God. Which is why I just love these next few verses in John's letter. It's like John almost like pauses for a moment to make it absolutely clear how he sees the recipients of this letter. So let's just go ahead and read verses 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14, John says this. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, 
because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. These are just some incredible words of encouragement for John's readers. These verses make it very clear how John views them. They have an authentic relationship with the Lord. But before we talk about what he says to them, I want to just talk briefly about who he is addressing in these verses. John uses, he uses three different terms, right, to address them in, in these verses. He uses the term children, fathers, and young men. Now, who exactly does John, you know, have in mind when he refers to each of these children, fathers, and young men? So some Bible scholars believe that he is addressing different age groups in the church, like the young, the older, we won't say old, the older, and then maybe those who are somewhere in between age-wise. Others believe that he's addressing three different levels of like spiritual maturity in the church. New believers, older believers, and again, those who are somewhere in between. But if this is really what John had in mind, it does seem a little odd that he listed them in the order that he did, right? Children, fathers, then those in between. It's not exactly a, a, a logical order, right? And in that culture, it would have been awkward at best to address children before fathers, right? In that culture. And so for that reason, and in addition to uh, the way that I see John referring to his audience throughout this entire letter, uh, my preference and the, and the view that I find to be most compelling is that when John refers to children in these verses, he's referring to the entire congregation of believers, the young and the old, the, the spiritually you know, new in Christ and those who've been walking with Christ for a long time. In chapter two, verse one, which we've already looked at, he called the readers what? My little children. In chapter 2, verse 18, he calls them children. In chapter 2, verse 28. In chapter 3, verse 7. In chapter 3, verse 18. In chapter 4, verse 4. In chapter 5, verse 21, John is going to refer to his readers as little children. So why in the world would I think anything else when it comes to this small section of Scripture? He is referring to the whole body of believers. And we need to remember that John is at this point, right? He is an elderly man and he's a spiritual father in the church. So it's very natural for him to look at them as his children. But what about when he refers to fathers and young men? Who's he thinking about then? Well, I tend to favor the view that he's addressing two different levels of spiritual maturity in the church, those who have a deeper relationship with the Lord through time and, and experience, and those who are younger in the faith, who are filled with passion and zeal for the Lord. But the truth is, the truth is, it doesn't really matter where you land on who exactly John has in mind in these verses, 
Because what is absolutely clear and undisputable is that John is writing to believers. He is writing to Christians. And the things that he says about these you know, children, fathers, and young men are things that should be true and they should be growing in the lives of all who are followers of Jesus. So let's take a closer look then at what he says about them. So first, he addresses the children and he says in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then again, at the end of verse 13, he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. John says, you're not like the false teachers and those who merely claim to know God, the ones that I've been addressing up to this point. He says, you really do know him. You do have a relationship with God. He wants them to be confident in their relationship with the Lord, and he wants them to know that their sins have been forgiven. And what does he say in verse 12? They've been forgiven for his name's sake. It's not because of what they've done. Al mentioned that earlier today. It's because of Jesus. It's because of his sacrifice, and it's because of their belief in him that their sins have been forgiven. In his gospel, in John chapter 1, John said this in, in verse 12. He said, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know that? That you're a child of God? Isn't that amazing? If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is God's son and you receive him as your Lord, as your Savior, the Bible says that your sins are forgiven and you become a child of God. And John wants his readers to be confident in that truth. And I want that for, for you. If you are truly a believer, I want you to be confident in that truth. And so then after addressing the children, he then turns uh, to the fathers and he says in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he repeats the same exact thing at the beginning of verse 14. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. These, these mature believers, these fathers in the faith have a true knowledge of God. And last week, we talked all about the fact that this is not some sort of like head knowledge, like, ooh, you know all kinds of facts about God, right? This isn't like the, the person like, man, they, I want them on my Bible trivia team, right? Because they can answer all the questions. They've memorized 4,000 verses. And no, this is a relationship knowledge, right? This is a person who has a deep and meaningful relationship with the God of the universe. He says, you mature, you fathers in the faith, you know him who is from the beginning. That's awesome. Some of you right now in this room, you know him, you know, you really know him. I am so thankful. I'm so thankful for the mature believers that God has placed in my life. I'm so thankful for the mature believers that God has placed here in our church family. These are men and women who have walked with God through highs and lows. These mature believers, they have a depth of relationship with the Lord that's not easily shaken 
It's not easily shattered by the trials and the temptations of life. And we need to understand that they are a gift. They are a gift to God's church. They are a source of incredible faith and wisdom because they know the Lord. I love spending time with these people. I hope you do too. Next, he addresses the the young men. And he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he says the same thing again at the end of verse 14, but this time he adds some additional insight. And he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John reminds these young believers that that they are strong because the word of God is in them, empowering them to overcome the evil one. And he says that, He says that the word of God, what? It abides in them. They they haven't just like memorized God's word, right? God's word is living in them. It's changing them. They're not just taking his word in, right? They're living his word out. God's word is alive in them. Is God's word alive in you? I hope so. I hope so. It is great to spend time in God's Word. And some of you spend maybe hours reading God's Word, and that is awesome. But it's just a waste of hours in some ways if He doesn't change you, right? God wants to do more than just have you just read. He wants His Word to be lived out in you. That's what it's all about, right? The Word of God needs to be abiding in us. What an incredible encouragement to these young believers. I mean, think about it. They're getting this from who? Jesus' buddy, John, right? John's saying, man, I'm so proud of you. You're doing it, right? You're strong. God's word is alive in you and you have overcome the evil one. And at this point, they'd be like, yes, yes, we have. He's like a coach cheering on his, his players. So if there's any doubt, if there was any doubt you know, up to this point, how John felt about his readers, I would think that these verses should have cleared it up, right? If there's any doubt, you know, some people are like, well, I'm not really sure if he's writing to believers or if he's writing, like, I don't know how you could think anything else. He is clearly writing to believers here. He's writing to authentic believers who truly know the Lord. And I love the way, I love the way that he addresses the whole church family in, in these verses. Because the church is made up of young and old, right? It's made up of of those who have deep spiritual maturity and those who are maybe relatively new to the faith. I love that. You know, my heart for this church here at Fayette Baptist is that we would honor and lean on the wisdom of the spiritually mature men and women in our church family, that we would really lean on them. At the same time, my heart for this church is that we would celebrate and encourage the young believers in our midst, right? Helping them to grow in their gifts and to grow in their faith. My prayer for this church is that we would always, always be filled with young and those who are older, that we'd be filled with new believers, that we'd be filled with people who've walked with Jesus for decades and everyone in between 
on their faith journey. Because I believe that that is a picture of what a healthy community of believers should look like. It's what John describes here. And I'm grateful. I mean, when I look at our church, I am so grateful that, that I see white-haired people. Everybody's looking around. I'm grateful that we've got bald people. I'm grateful that we have young people with purple hair, green hair, blue hair. Uh, I, am, I am grateful that we have uh, seasoned saints, people who have walked with Jesus for a long, long time, and that we have new believers. So grateful for that. I'm grateful that just even last week, we had someone approach Pastor Henry and say, I want to get baptized. Isn't that awesome? Like, that's what the church should be. And so now, having encouraged these believers in verses 12 through 14, John is now going to shift gears, and he's going to issue a strong warning about not loving the world. Okay, we've done the encouraging. Time for some exhortation, all right? John wants them to know what not to love. We know that the Bible is pretty clear. There's a lot of things we need to love, right? We need to love God. We need to love our brothers and sisters. We need to love our enemies. We got to love all people. But now John is going to talk about what not to love. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. First, John gives them the warning. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And you might be thinking like, well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Didn't John also write John 3.16? I know that verse, right? <laughs> that verse is pretty clear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What do you mean, John? Don't love the world. God loves the world, shouldn't we? What's going on here? Well, in order to understand what John is saying, we need to understand that the Bible, in the Bible, the word for world can have uh, several different meanings. It can refer to the physical world, right? His creation. Is John saying you shouldn't love creation? You shouldn't love it? Clearly not. It can also refer to humanity, as it does in John 3.16, right? God so loved humanity that he sent his only son. But as it is often uh, used in Scripture, the word for world can also refer to the world system, the world system which stands opposed to God, a system of values and attitudes which reject God and reject his commands. You know, we use that the same way, don't we? You know, we could say like in, in, in the world of music, right? And you understand that, okay, we're talking about musical things when we talk about the world of music or in the world of sports. And isn't there like a slogan like the worldwide sports or something like that? Maybe ESPN or NESN or something. Anyway, we use world in the same way and we understand we say in the world of sports, we now we're thinking about sports. Well, in the world system, we're talking about a way of viewing everything that is contrary to God. And he says, do not love that system. And now he's going to give them a reason why. And in verse 15, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is drawing a line in the sand. And he says, you cannot love both God and the world. In the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4, James says this. He says, do you not 
know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, these are serious warnings, right, from both James and John. Do you want to make yourself an enemy of God? Is that your goal? I hope not, right? Trying to love God and love the world system is incompatible. It's incompatible. They are not able to coexist. These two systems are at war with one another. It's like, it's like trying to love the Red Sox and the Yankees <laughs> at the same time, right? It's, it's like, it's just not allowed. It's not allowed. And, and, and those who claim to like, no, I like them both. All they're really proving is that they don't really like either one of them because you cannot love enemies like that. You just can't love the Red Sox and the Yankees at the same time. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said something similar when he was talking about the, our treasure and what we treasure. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he said, just a few verses later, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus said. And John would tell you that you cannot love God and the world system that is opposed to him. You can't do it. In Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage, he renders it this way. He says, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Brothers and sisters, we need, we must guard our hearts and we need to make sure that we are not being enamored with worldly pursuits and worldly pleasures. Because John understands that if we are not careful, there is a very real temptation to be drawn into this world system. That's why he's giving them this warning, right? Because it's a real temptation. He loves these believers and he wants them to continue growing in their faith. So he says, you cannot love both God and the world. Now in verse 16, he's going to explain why that is why you can't love both. Verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John says that the reason why you cannot love both God and the world is because all that is in the world, all the things that make up this worldly system, this worldly way of viewing things, are not from the Father. They are not from God, but they're from the world. And not only do they not originate with God, but these worldly traits and these worldly ways of looking at things are actually in opposition to God and to godly living. They are intended to draw your heart away from God. And I think it's important that we understand that there really is an intent behind the world system. Because there is actually a ruler behind the world system. 
He's your enemy. He is the evil one that John has just written about. He is Satan. John wants his readers to understand that the world system is designed to lead you away from God and not to him. You need to know that. You're not just floating endlessly through this, like aimlessly through this world. There's a battle being fought for the souls of men, a real spiritual battle. And this world system expresses itself in three sinful desires that John is going to lay out here in verse 16. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. And what's important, I think, for us to understand is that these sinful desires, these sinful desires, and by the way, other translations use the word here, they use the word lust, right? Some of you have that translation in front of you? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Because these lusts, these desires, they actually appeal to natural desires that we have. Let me give you an example. We all have physical desires, right? We have them. Um, hunger is a desire, right? We want to eat. Thirst is a desire. We, we desire something to drink. We have desires to, to work, right, and to create things. Some of you, some of you are like, I do not desire to work. I don't. I desire to be on a beach somewhere. Okay. We desire rest, right, on a beach somewhere. We have, we have uh, desires for friendships, right? We have desires for companionship, relationships. We have sexual desires, right? And all of these desires, they can be good, right? They can be good because, you know, you need to eat, right? But they can also be used to draw you into sin. Hunger is a good desire, right? It's good to eat. It's good to, to, to nourish your body. But if that desire leads you to gluttony, that's a sin. It becomes a sinful desire. Make sense? It's good to desire rest. We need to sleep. But if that desire leads you to laziness, then it becomes sin. By the way, my favorite Proverbs are absolutely the ones about the sluggard. Those are so good. As a door turns on its hinges, so the, the sluggard turns in his bed back and forth. I love that picture. Or the one burying his hand in the bowl like, I can't eat because it's too much work to raise the food to my mouth. I love those proverbs. Sexual desires are a good thing, right? It's, it's a gift from God for a husband and wife, right? But if that desire leads to pornography, if it leads to fornication, if it leads to adultery, then it has become a, 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 a lust, right? It is a, a sinful desire, and it is from the world system. It is not from God. John says that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are not from the Father, but are from the world. So what are these desires? Let's talk just a little bit more about them. The desires of the flesh that John speaks of are those, they're internal desires which lead us into sin and away from God. Physical and, and or emotional desires that we seek to fulfill apart from God's plans. 
You're, you're, you're seeking to fulfill this natural desire apart from God's plans. It has now become a sinful desire of the flesh. The desires of the eyes that John speaks of, these are desires that are stimulated by what we see. We're like, ooh, that looks good and I want it. I want that. I need that. The desires of the eyes leave us feeling envious of others, unsatisfied in coveting what we do not have. And the pride of life describes the boastfulness and the arrogance that comes from the things that we have or the positions that we hold. The New American Standard Bible is, translates it this way, the boastful pride of life. These desires lead us away from our dependence on God to a prideful independence and a prideful self-reliance. We care more about our name and our reputation than we do about his. That's pride of life. And you know what's really interesting about these, these desires? Is that if you were just to take a moment and really reflect on any area of sin in your life, whether it's something you're dealing with right now or something that you've dealt with in the past, if you were to try to get to the root cause of that sin, you would find that it falls into one or more of these three areas that he lays out here in 1 John. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the pride of life. If you were to look at any of the sins that are recorded in the pages of Scripture, and one of the things I love about Scripture is how honest it is about its heroes, you know, like David, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also pretty, pretty ugly sinner, you know, David was. But if you were to look at the sin of David and Bathsheba, what is it? Lust of the eyes? I want that. Lust of the flesh, a sexual desire? I need that, right? Pride of life? David struggled with all those sins, didn't he? What about Judas? What did Judas want? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The very first temptation. It looked good to eat, didn't it? The fruit. And if you eat it, you could be like God. Pride of life. I don't need God. A lot of Bible scholars suggest that when, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan tried to appeal to these same desires with Jesus. He was hungry, lust of the flesh. I'm hungry. The difference is Jesus didn't succumb to those temptations, did he? He didn't. He had hunger, but he was not willing to compromise in order to fulfill his hunger. He wasn't willing to follow these worldly desires. Another thing that's interesting and worth noting about these sinful desires is how sneaky, how sneaky they can be. It is possible for us to have a desire for something that is good, but desire it for the wrong reasons. This is, gets tricky, doesn't it? For example, it's a good thing to give money to help others. That's a good thing, right? Nothing wrong with that. I desire to give money to help the poor. But if I'm doing it in such a way so that others will take notice of me and say, wow, isn't he generous? Isn't he generous? Which sin did I just commit? It's the pride of life, 
right? I'm doing it to elevate myself so that I look great in front of others. So the answer must be don't give to the poor, right? Well, no, the answer is to get your heart right. And how about doing it in a way where nobody knows that you did it except for you and the Lord. And his applause is the only one that you seek, right? I mean, you can do all kinds of things. You can go on a missions trip for the wrong reason. Like, man, I am so signing up for the missions trip to Hawaii. That sounds amazing. (laughs) And I'm going there so that I can be on a beach. It's the wrong reason. It's the wrong motivation. It's a good thing, but I might be doing it for the wrong reasons. And the answer isn't necessarily not to do it. The answer is to get your heart right and make sure you're doing it for the right reason. Amen? God knows the difference. And we do too, if we'll stop and think about it for just a second. John wants his readers and he wants us to be aware of these sinful desires so that we can reject them, right? And we can choose to follow the Lord's desires instead. You know, and if you're ever struggling to know whether a desire is from the Lord or whether it's a worldly desire, let me just going to give you a, a, a few um, things that you should do. Number one, pray. Pray, ask the Lord to reveal his desires for you. Lord, is this from you? Ask him, ask him. Number two, check your desire against his word. What does the Bible teach? Oh, I have a desire for my coworker who's married. Sorry, God's word is pretty clear on this. That is not from the Lord. And you don't understand, this happens all the time. All the time. God just wants me to be happy. He wants me to be happy. That person makes me happy. I'm sorry, he's not gonna call you to break one of his commands in order to make you happy. He won't do it. He will not do it. Check your desire against his word. What does the Bible teach? Number three, talk with another believer, someone mature in the faith. Talk to those spiritual fathers and mothers that God has placed in your life. Ask them to to pray with you. Ask them to search the scriptures with you. Number four, ask yourself this question. What's my motivation? Why do I want this? What is it that I'm really after? And then number five, ask yourself this question. Will this bring me closer to God or will it lead me away from him? God is always in the business of drawing us closer to himself. And if you answer the question, I have this desire, and if I'm honest, I realize that that is gonna put a wedge between me and the Lord or it's something that's gonna lead me away. I'm gonna become more self-reliant and less dependent on him you can be sure that the Lord is not leading you to become less reliant on him. John is warning these believers not to love the world or any of these worldly desires because first of all, they are not from God and those who love them cannot truly love God. And then secondly, John says, do not love the world because the world system is not going to last. Verse 17, the last verse we're looking at today. Verse 17, he says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John wrote something very similar in the passage that we looked at last week in chapter two, verse eight. He said, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In 1 Corinthians chapter seven, verse 31, Paul said, the present form of this world is passing away. Away, Brothers and sisters, there is a very real spiritual battle that is going on all around us. We need to know that. We do have a very real 
enemy. But praise God, he is a defeated enemy. Amen? He is defeated. Satan's time is limited. And so he is busy. He is busy. Jesus said he is going to come again. Do you believe that? He is going to come again. And when he does, Satan and his world system is going to be destroyed forever. That's coming. It's coming. And so John tells his readers, why in the world would you bet on a horse that you know is going to lose, right? Why would you go with the world system? The world system is going down. It's going to end. And those who love it, those who follow it, are going to go down with it. And that doesn't bring us any joy, does it? Jesus came so that no one would have to perish, but that all might have eternal life. But the good news is, according to verse 17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's great news, right? That's really encouraging news. John says, this should be a no-brainer, right? You can, you can go with the world system, which you know is going to end, or you can follow God's desires and abide forever. John says, this is a no-brainer. Why would you choose anything else? Follow the world and perish with it. Follow the Lord and live forever. Brothers and sisters, John tells us that we should not love the world or any of these worldly desires because they are not from God and those who love them cannot truly know or love God. And the world system is not going to last. Instead, then we should love God, we should follow him knowing that we will live forever. I'll close with these thoughts. John Stott asked this question. He said, well, what then is to be the Christian's attitude to the world? Answer, he is not to escape out of it. He is to remain in it. He is to be unworldly without becoming otherworldly, living in it without being of it. I love that answer. Let me close with the words of uh, the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians 2, uh, 2, 13 through 15, Paul says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? His pleasures, not the world's. So do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In it, right? Without being of it. Brothers and sisters, you know I love to say this. Let your light shine. Let your light shine and let it shine bright. Next week, we're going to continue our way through chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. Much bigger chunk next week, right? Ten verses in the same Sunday. It's going to be incredible. So, Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you so much. And I just want to thank you, thank you, thank you for the words of encouragement that you uh, penned through John. 
to the church, to the children of God, to, to the wise and the, and, and the spiritually mature and to those who are new in the faith, encouraging them, reminding them that their sins are forgiven and that they really do know you. Thank you, God, that we do know you. Thank you that our sins are forgiven. And God, I want to thank you for the exhortation that you also gave us through John. There's a very real world system that is is vying for our heart, vying for our attention. God, help us not to fulfill worldly desires, but rather to, to fulfill your desires for our lives. God, help us not to cling to a system that's going to end, but rather cling to a Savior who's coming again, to cling to a Savior who is going to bring us to live with you forever. God, thank you so much for your word. And as we prayed at the beginning, I pray that it would change us, that the word wouldn't just be coming into our ears, but it would be lived out in our lives this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, for the rest of the week, for the rest of our lives. Jesus, please have your way in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.